At the signal, time will be out of joint. I'm Lucy, and I'm here with Sean. Hello. This week, we're going to be exploring a theme, a series of events, and an entity that has been in the background, and in many cases, foreground of events both globally and in the context of this podcast since the turbid winter of 1966. I am talking, of course, about Mothman and his various prophecies. And we're not doing this alone, uh, because we're joined by someone who is in many ways our own personal Mothman, one Robert J. Keery, a.k.a. Bobsey. Hello, Sean and Lucy. Thank you ever so much for having me on board. Yeah, obviously you might know from sorry, <laughs> from Diane and various sundry podcasts. Yeah, bits and pieces here and there. I've been waiting. This is the most exciting podcast I've ever been on. There. I've been waiting to be invited on this one by you two MFs for, well, since the beginning. <laughs> now it's, it's my favourite podcast. And it's going to be as mothy and going to be shrill, incoherent, <laughs> yeah. and change your old bloody life. It's my whole favourite podcast. I love the bit about 20 minutes in when yeah. Lucy's scotch and coffee start to hit and she starts going off. And then about 40 minutes in, <laughs> Sean always finds a new way to pronounce the word deluse. And then, <laughs> those the, and then like the third part of the podcast is a bit above my pay grade, to be honest. You've kind of lost me. But um, that's what makes it such a great learning experience every time, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, thank, oh, thank, you, thank you for coming thank on. You. Yeah. And uh, Bob and I did have, well, we have podded together a few times. We had a little podcast going for a while, Deep Status, mm-hmm. before that ter- term was entirely cursed. Uh, still pulls in a solid £2.10 a month, yeah. and it still goes to a, a local refugee charity. You'll be pleased to hear. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Just uh, just don't let HMRC know about that extra. <laughs> uh, yeah, those both Tanks both those quids <laughs> both those quids a year. Great. Uh, yeah, it's so, very much a money laundering operation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. If anyone is actually listening to this, then that is not true. Anyway, um, so the fucking Mothman prophecies. Okay, right. We've yeah. been doing, we're well, doing... what is? I mean, like, do we have? Okay, did we have a, like an essay or a theme? Anything we want to talk about that's like tangential to the film that's not actually in the film, like we, we like we like to do. Well, funny you should say that, Lucy. Yes, I do. Well, in fact, you can see it right here on my you monitor. Didn't say that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. So I want. So as we move, as as we journey together into the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, flutter, if you will. <laughs> we're going. To, we're going to start off. Um, we're going to start off with a little chat about high weirdness. Nice. Uh, okay, 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 okay. So, okay, high weirdness. This is a term that refers both to a kind of supernormal experience, is what I'm going to call it. I'm not going to say supernatural necessarily, I'm going to call it kind of a supernormal or in the extraordinary experience. Uh, it can also be used, um, this is the sense that another writer, Eric Davis, uses it in his book, High Weirdness. Uh, it can also be used to refer to a particular cultural moment. So, what do I mean by that? Uh, by supernormal experience, I mean an experience which broadly maps onto the criteria for religious experiences. Like, like typically, you know, the, the classic definition is provided by William James, uh, which we'll go on to in a little bit. But... But at the same time, we use this term high weirdness because the term religious experience is insufficient. Like the the experiences that people report, which gets described as experiences of high weirdness, they have a certain like excessive quantity to them, which is which we'll come back to. And by that cultural moment, 
we mean specifically the visionary, esoteric, psychedelic, countercultural current of the 70s, and as exemplified by Philip K. Dick, PKD, Terence McKenna, and of course Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who are the three figures that uh, Davis studies most in his book. But that's really weird, by the way, sorry, but I'd never kind of thought about it referring to a specific bounded uh, moment before. I'd, I'd only really thought about it as being a set of generalised phenomena which could be encountered mm. hither and yon. There is a canon. Yeah, right. That's what apparently there is now. The weird canon. I think, because I, th I think there's, um, yeah, because the term high weirdness, I hadn't encountered used in that sense before I read the book High Weirdness by Eric Davis. And so, I, so it's possible that he, that usage of it is a particular... Uh, coinage of his but it does kind of track because these are all people whose lives were very much lives of high weirdness especially mm. like you know the pun is kind of you know uh, is, is deliberate there are people like Terence McKenna and uh, Bob Wilson and so on so on like oh, being, being yeah, very sure. very <laughs> work, uh, being very much into yeah these being psychedelic encounters a lot of the time so okay and they did I guess set the parameters of discussion for what passes for that kind of topic as well right exactly yeah, yeah. okay yeah so um William James, who I just mentioned. So William James and the religious experience. So a little bit about James, 19th century American philosopher working in the pragmatist tradition um, and sort of like speaking super broadly, like pragmatism as a position kind of like it holds that for a statement or concept to be true, that means that the usage of that concept, right, is obviously... Uh, it performs something that like seems to work basically so um you could say that for james uh you know truth is what works in the sense that um if we say of someone or something that uh they or it is healthy that means it's fulfilling a particular set of like criteria that we'd expect it to fulfill so when we say some so for from the pragmatist position when we say something is true we mean it's operating the way we would expect it to operate it it has a kind of predictability to it uh, and so on. But what this kind of also means is that um, there's a lot of variableness to truth. Then, like, like it's very, you know, this isn't something that's especially fixed. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about like abstract platonic eternals. We're, we're talking much more about the lived experiences of people. We're talking about so like what is actually, what, what, what is working? What's working for us here? Um, and this so this is an epistemology that is very sceptical of absolutist claims and it really centers in on the actual you know lived experiences of people like it's quite it's quite similar to phenomenology as, a, as you know the continental school it being very much about you know okay what's actually happening at the experiential level the actual you know the plane of ordinary living which is actually you know where we spend our lives what's working there what's happening there why shouldn't this be the focus of our attention right so James is very is most well known for his work on religious experience or mystical experiences, and he gave us a set of four criteria basically for determining yeah for defining mystical and religious experiences. Um, this is yeah, like I said, this is what he's most well well known for. These the four qualities of a mystical experience for James being ineffability. Uh, they the experience cannot be adequately described to others. They have a quality to them, which means they have to be directly experienced. They can never really be fully shared. They could be like gestured at, but you can't really, you just have to have, have the experience, right? 
There is a noetic quality to them. Uh, they are experienced as states of knowledge, uh, where a truth is discovered that couldn't have been known otherwise. Uh, they're transient, they are of a limited duration, and there's an element of passivity to them. The, the subject is passive in the face of the experience. They can't, they can't influence it. It's something that's happening to you, right? Um, what's also interesting about religious or mystical experiences taken uh, taken as a whole, though, is that they they're not necessarily or even not often pleasant. Um, and we talked about this in um, our episode of Martyrs. Actually, used this. I brought, I brought this up as an example. Um, yeah, these experiences can actually be quite can be terrifying. They can be very disturbing things to experience and like Saint Teresa of Avila in her spiritual diary uh, she described a kind of religious ecstasy which in Catholic um, in Catholic mystical tradition is called uh, transverberation uh, and she describes it like having a like a red hot hook like jammed into her guts and like ripped out again so like this encounter of like the absolute uh, like um, otherness of, of God coming in coming into her uh, in very, very, sort of like, she describes it in very direct, physical, violent, uh, violating terms almost. Like, these aren't experience, and like, she does, you know, this is horrible and very, you know, yeah, this is a very disturbing experience, but it's also, you know, a transformative experience for her. Like, she does view this and writes this in, in miraculous terms. This is feeling God's love in the most direct way you possibly can, and it is agony. Like, it's agony to have that kind of experience, right? So we're saying, sorry, that like that James's description and experience of a religious experience is we would call weirdness within the context of Davis's framework. Yeah, this is something about we. Yeah, so something coming sort of like onto here because there's a um, there's a yeah yeah so I, yeah I just want to talk a little bit more about this. I mean, I'm going to get onto the okay. get onto the bit. Don't rush me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just checking, I'm just checking that I'm catching up, that I'm, that I'm caught up and, you know. And, and, and as, as the listener might be wondering right now. So, yeah, don't, don't worry, we're getting, we're getting to the The listeners might be as stupid as I am. <laughs> Are we going to get on to, like, I don't know, like, I was going to ask, like, uh, does this have a kind of, like, map onto the Lovecraftian weird, the weird that we talk about in the beginning of every single episode, even if we don't mention it again? Is <laughs> um, <laughs> so there a kind the, of analysis thing? Uh, yeah. yeah, so in terms of, like, um, yeah, I think that, I mean, yeah, often in Lovecraft's writing it feels like um, he's wrestling with these kind of, like, noumenal experiences somehow. Because, you know, like, the weird, the weird of, you know... All things you read in all horns logical. Is just to just to remind uh, our listeners, uh, all first time listeners, that that is from Mark Fisher's last book, uh, The Weird and the Eerie. Uh, and in his uh, in this kind of like these two aesthetic category he, categories, he proposes um, specifically for talking about horror, but not just that um, encounters. The aesthetic of eeriness is deficiencies of presence or, or absences. You know, sort of like uh, like the um, or, uh, yeah. So like. Um, uh, you know, so like a faceless figure is an eerie figure because there's like a, a disturbing absence there, right? While the weird is uh, is grotesque. It's an excess. It's, a, it's an excessive uh, explosion of presence. This it is like the writhing mass of the shoggoth, right? It's mm -hmm. just the too muchness of it, the overwhelming too muchness of it. So yeah, like these experiences. So, so yeah, these these. So, yeah, but it sounds like it sounds like the experience that that James is describing here. Is very much a weird one, not an eerie one. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that, uh, and I think when it comes to when it comes to weird fiction, 
Um, I think, you know, right like Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Mackin are fantastic for conveying that noumenal quality to the wit. I think they are, they're better at it than, well, I don't want to say better at it than, than Lovecraft, because Lovecraft is doing something different with it, because, you know, for, for Lovecraft, the world is fundamentally terrifying. You know, so, like, so for him, like, any kind of experience like that is just a shattering, devastating one, uh, regardless of what the nature of the otherness is. You know, it's, you know for Lovecraft, you know, it's the otherness of, like, people from Italy. You know, it's just, like, psychically terrifying for him, because he's so, he is so contained within himself. While for Mackin and Blackwood, um, the, the noumenal, the, the excessiveness of divinity is something like, it is terrifying. Like, it is a frightening force, but not in the same, they, but they were not on the same, like, pure, but not on the same, like, neurotic or psychotic terms is for Lovecraft. Like, it is, like, it is terror in the face of God, and it's understood as that. Like, it's still, right. under, like, yeah, for, like, you know, like, Matt, you know, Mac and Woods are Christian, if oh, there's a terror at Bent and Blackwood. Blackwood was a little bit of everything, but, yeah, like, they both, they both understood it in, like, clearly in sort of, in mystical, religious terms, even if, like, slightly idiosyncratic ways, but, you know, like, Lovecraft's, like, Lovecraft's athe atheism doesn't give him an outlet like that, like sure. it just has to be a monstrous tentacled um, extraterrestrial, you know, that's what it has to be, the encounters of the other, of, of, of excessive otherness. Mm. Um, and there's no like, um, there's no enrichment in, there's no like learning from the perspective of the narrator in Lovecraft either, right? As you say, they, they're, it's it, yeah, they're just destroyed and they're yeah, relating it post facto as well. Because the, yeah, the experience of learning is destructive for mm. them. Because you know, the knowledge can only be destructive. And, for, for and in a sense, it's kind of like nothing is necessarily gained from the knowledge because it's like it's, it just shows the limits of what they're capable of and, like what, and where understanding trails off. Whereas I feel like there's something kind of... There's there's something more in it for like the human witness <laughs> in in this kind of like high witness like well I mean we're we're probably gonna get into kind of like the weeds of this in that like it has a lot more kind of focus on sort of I don't know like the uh, it feels like it's not to say that you know it's like kind of these things are happening to the particular people for a particular reason but I think I mean that that's the kind of is I mean we talk about the K Dick's things of like being kind of like divine experiences but like very much in the sense that they feel like they've been chosen in some capacity to experience these things yeah. whereas in a kind of Lovecraftian weird sense that would just be a, a totally irrelevance mm -hmm. and they just happen to be like the next fucking schmuck in line yes. to, <laughs> to get their, their minds blasted out the back walls of their head yeah to, yeah yeah uh, that's a really good point I think because like because um, in Philip K. Dick you get like a sense that it's all part of some Glittering, wonderful plan. Yeah, whereas like, in Lovecraft, Dick is a question. Like, in Lovecraft, it's like, is there's no plan. Yeah, he's got yeah. A plan, a the plan is deep kind of. Yeah, he's got like kind of deep historicity to it, where he mm -hmm. sees himself as part of continuity rather than just another troubled ape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so to um, with these so okay, so so, so with, with these experiences, these ex with religious or mystical experiences, and which and these can obviously be quite ordinary. And, and like caught up in sort of like everyday life like we're recording this on, on a Sunday and as, as and you know I went to church this morning and you know in a certain sense I engage in a religious experience there by you know so sort of like taking communion and so on right and um, one, but one, one of the things that's interesting about these experiences is there's something that and, and Davis quotes uh, uh, the Romanian um, uh, uh, um, comparative scholar of comparative religion there we go Mersha Eliad um, but these can Taboo objects, right, are, have these can have can have this curious quality of being both like sacred and also um, 
objects of terror or disgust at the same time. You know, sort of like the, the holy object, the sacred object, doesn't have to be something beautiful necessarily. It can be something that is fundamentally kind of twisted um, or something, you know, like you know, the classic example of this would be a skull, for instance, or like an, like an ancestral... Uh, like a, like the bodies of the ancestors, which you know, sort of like some indigenous communities, you know, preserve and keep in the family home. For instance, you know, there's a certain, there's a sacredness to them, but they are also there's something there is still like an element of taboo caught up with this. And what and what's and something I think is actually an interesting example of how these things can transform over time. Actually, is um, the Christian Eucharist because the in because what is occurring there, right, is through various, you know, sort of like metaphorical or metaphysical or symbolic channels or whatnot, um, the Eucharist is an act of cannibalism. It is understood by the believer as, uh, ha it has to be a cannibalistic act, ultimately, because it has to be the body and the blood of Christ, otherwise it's nothing. Um, and, uh, and obviously my theology is very high church about these things, but at the same time, you know, like that, that's kind of like the whole thing, right? Like that's, if you, this is something that we've deeply enculturated by this living in a post-Christian society. But if you take a step back and think about this, sort of like try and think about this in sort of like a, outside of your normal cultural experience of it, you, you realise you know, at the heart of the religion here is something profoundly strange and profoundly messed up. You know, it is an act of uh, to come close to God. And all the thing you need to do to do this is to engage in an act of theophagy, to eat, to eat the flesh of the God Man. That's how you gain it, and that's something you know, something that the Romans wrote about when the, we, uh, when, Christ, when the Christian cults were first spread, um, popping up across the empire. Was this, you know, these rumours that sort of like they engage in some kind of incestuous cannibalistic feast was what people would say uh, about about them, and that indicates just how you know. You know this, you know, the arrival of this new matrix of, of religious experience in another culture. It's experience like that that indicates you how fucking weird it must have originally been. Right. The Romans um, weren't a terribly squeamish people. One feels, and yet they thought that that was a little bit too much. Yeah. So um, all this, all this is prologue, right? So because we're talking, what we're talking about here is is high weirdness. And the reason I wanted you to talk about this at first, just to give us a little bit of like a vocabulary of talking about these supernormal experiences because like there's an like I said um, there's an kind of an excessive quality to them by which I mean they can't really be comfortably narrativized away there's always something about them that feels like you can't quite figure out how this bit fits into the picture of interpretation that you have for the experience right so this is um so I'm just going to read this out here. This is a quote from. Um, this is, it's not too long. Okay, this is this is just from the Eric Davis book. This is him quoting someone else. But um, yeah, just this is this is what we mean when we talk about high weirdness. Uh, here, for example, is a trip report included in uh, Jim DeCorn's important 1992 book, Psychedelic Shamanism, an imaginative discussion of psychedelic phenomenology published by the underground stalwart uh, Loom Panics, but includes a good deal... Uh, well, actually, I'm actually going to burst, but I'm a bit boring. Here we go. Uh, after swallowing ayahuasca, uh, the fellow began to see mosaic tapestries whose vaguely, quote, Aztec patterns seemed at once organic and calculated. And then, quote begins, the high weirdness began. The tapestries disappeared and were replaced by darkness. Soon stalagmites and floor-to-ceiling columns appeared. I was in a cave with rock formations that resembled trees designed by Dali, seemingly vegetable and mineral at the same time. As I moved among them, I noticed one that was much larger than the others. 
Getting closer, I noticed a large crack in its side, and then that the, that the interior was hollow and illuminated by a pale blue light. It was then I noticed the entity, about the size of a large dog, but with reptilian characteristics. The word dragon popped in and out. It moved towards me, uh, it, moved, it moved towards me the moment our eyes met. Only about eight feet of approach was necessary for it to press its face against the crack in the column. Have you seen the sci-fi classic It Came From Outer Space? There was a slight resemblance between the space monsters and this being. I feel now that here I blew it. This being wanted to get close to me, yet I did not speak nor did I move closer. I forgot that I was a participant and not merely an observer. Time passed as we stared at each other. Finally, this creature made a kissing movement with its lips and a glowing blue ball emerged from its mouth through the crack and hung in space. The rest of the image faded, but the ball, in 3D, hung in my bedroom for some minutes. So, what we see here is like there's an obvious simpatico with the William James stuff here, right? But at the same time, this does kind of fall out of the... falls out of what we've been talking about, right? Because, like, for, especially, like... You know something about you know the the uh, the unnamed tripper states there is that like there was a moment where he forgot that he was a participant and not a passive observer, and that is that is one of the key sort of distinctions I think sort of like, when we talk about high weirdness as opposed to more ordinary kinds of religious experience that these are things that can be triggered somehow by occult ritual by um, psychedelics and so on like these are things that you can actually you can do something with them you know it's not just you know, like for Philip K. Dick, you know, it's not just like, you know, the beam of the, the pink laser beam from the Valis satellite into your pituitary gland, right? Or St. Paul witnessing the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, right? These things where it's just like this authority shines the spotlight on you and now you have to respond to it. These are kind of the experiences where you're kind of an equal partner in them, but it's still an experience where the ordinary world around you, like, fucking stops for a bit and things get fucking weird. You know, things just stop making sense the way they do. And one of the things that Davis points out here is what's one of the things that's curious is how elements of pop culture often kind of get eaten up into these. Like the guy talks about a 1950s sci-fi movie. So it's like that. It's like, it's like this movie I saw, you know. Um, or, you know, it's like, it's like uh, Trees by Dali, you know, who's like, again, like a very, like, poppy artist, right? <sighs> So it's kind of made out of the bric-a-brac of whatever you're expecting something weird to look like. Exactly, yeah. Like almost an inversion of Proboscis Luke. <laughs> Please explain that for everybody, Lucy. <laughs> while I, explain that while I can set my notes to remind myself. Okay, so, shall I just read it out? Because, I mean, it's like, I think this is a nice kind of counterpart and maybe we can discuss yeah. this. Yes. Okay. Actually, yes, you're quite right, yes. <laughs> okay. Alright, this is, I'm, I'm looking this up, this is originally a uh, screen grab of a 4chan post posted on r slash one word ban, which I don't know what the title is for that, but it is titled Proboscis Luke. Um, when I was a kid, I had a surreal and terrifying experience watching a VHS of the special edition of Star Wars A New Hope with my mom. I believe this was in the late 90s, brackets 1998, but I can't give an exact date, so I apologise. However, I was approximately 11 or 12. Basically, we were watching the part of the film where they're in the Death Star. At one point, when confronted by stormtroopers, Luke's nose suddenly extended grotesquely into a strange flesh-coloured elephant's trunk. It then flailed around, making elephant trumpet sounds, scaring the stormtroopers off. I vividly remember this, and I was absolutely terrified. My mom was just really, well, my mom was really jarred and confused, and trying to calm me down. Leia then says, "That's enough, Proboscis Luke," and his nose returned to normal. 
The film also continued on as normal. Every subsequent viewing of our VHS was completely normal, as with every previous viewing. We had already watched the film multiple times prior to the incident, so that precludes it being some strange edited copy, which would be, which would be weird in and of itself. My mom still remembers the event, and sometimes we talk about it. It honestly feels somewhat demonic, like something was trying to fuck with us through the VHS. The recent talk of the quote-unquote bigger Luke hypothesis kept reminding me of the incident, so I thought I'd finally post it somewhere. Anyone else have any strange experiences watching films like this? What's the bigger Luke hypothesis? Do we know okay, the bigger Luke <laughs> hypothesis is where... Okay, let's... I'm, I'm gonna. I don't, I don't want to like. I don't want to like. I'm really pleased that I managed to turn this into a Star Wars podcast. This is okay. Oh god. Okay. So there's a Guardian article about it now. Bigger Luke is officially over. Is this uh, the, the beefy toys that came out? Okay. Bigger Luke wiki. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Bigger Luke wiki. Oh, for f- Give me the origins of Bigger Luke. I don't care. Okay, Star Wars. Okay, Reddit, Reddit, please. Okay, so Star Wars, the Bigger Luke theory is bigger than just a joke theory and potentially explains the reason as to how Luke Skywalker does things with little experience. Luke Skywalker is a lucky kid. He manages to fly an X-Wing with barely any experience. He's able to take Darth Vader head-on with barely any training. Brackets, that could just be Darth Vader going easy on him. Um, he's able to consistently dodge lasers and whatnot in the whole movie. It's unbelievable that this guy does all these things with such a minuscule amount of experience without the slightest of fault, making all the right decisions. It's as if he experienced this before. Or that George Lucas is a fucking hack. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's a theory people aren't willing to entertain. Um, the bigger Luke theory states, through, through photo evidence, that there are already two Luke Skywalkers, one being Prime Luke, the one we see throughout the movie, and the other being Bigger Luke, a slightly taller Luke that appears in a few scenes. <laughs> so I think the origin of this is that, like, sometimes Luke appears to be bigger than makes sense, and people have put pictures, like, look, here's him next to Harrison Ford in one picture, he's shorter here. In another picture, same guys, same, same dimension, same, same reality. Okay. He's bigger here. Um, yeah, an audio medium, but like, yeah, it's, he's a couple Just inches Google off. Just Google bigger Luke. Just Google bigger Luke. This is, yeah. <laughs> so that's the bigger Luke hypothesis and proboscis Luke. Okay. Oh, yeah. mercy. I feel like proboscis Luke is a small child having a bit of a, you know. Yeah. Purely he's tough, right? Well, apparently um, he was tough on the mother as well, though. These are all. This is well, the bigger think, Luke I, I don't podcast. Think, I don't. I don't get the impression that Mum saw it. I think she was just coping with the fact that her kid was freaking out. No, I think. I think no, she was. It that. says that like yeah, yeah. They, they, they've talked about it. Yeah, they uh, talked about how he saw a proboscis. I don't think yeah, she saw it. Watching a VHS of the special edition of Star Wars: A New Hope with my mom. Yeah, the, 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 the implication is that she also saw Proboscis Propos- yeah. Luke, and she knows what she saw. She knows what she saw. Yeah, she knows what he saw. Is it? They saw Proboscis Luke. I think he saw Proboscis Luke and Mum saw her child get upset. <laughs> I think. Um, well, 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 some of the comments stipulate that maybe kids saw Proboscis Luke, Mum saw accidental taping over with one of Dad's stag thumbs. And <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, you, need to, you needed to put a little bit of sticky tape over the tab mm. in order to record onto her. This is 1998. Oh, wait, yeah, 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 wait, yeah. no. Yeah. Ah. This predates tab browsing, but of course my... Not that kind of tab, yeah. yeah. Can I, can I... Can we get back to the podcast? <laughs> Just to uh, pull us back onto the tracks here. Uh, okay, okay. Well, this is, but at the same time, this kind of like, 
the proboscis Luke prophecies um, do kind of, that is kind of what we're talking about here though because these are experiences where okay like one thing that's important to stipulate here and this is that often these aren't experiences that the people who have had them would then describe as being a religious experience sometimes <laughs> sometimes they like sometimes they would but more often than not they they people would talk about We'll, we'll kind of just like emphasize the fact of the just the overwhelming strangeness of them, right? Like, mm-hmm. these are more like experiences where reality just sort of like just like took a shit and died, basically. You know, like these uh-huh. are glitches in the matrix more than they are uh, the visions of the Virgin Mary. You know, that's not an experience of high weirdness. So, they have like a quality which is absurd or silly or kind of meaningless. Yeah, so the yeah. This is the thing, like, there's this, there's this excessiveness to them again. Like, they can't, you can't just fucking narrativize them away. And I want to be clear what I mean by that. Like, so, if you, if tomorrow I woke up and had a, sort of, I thought I saw the Virgin Mary at the foot of my bed, you know, I have, like, as a, as a Christian, whatever, I have, like, uh, an interpretive matrix available to me that makes sense of what that event was. It'd still be a very strange thing to have happened, but I can say... Uh, I had a I, I saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary at the foot of my bed, and that's there's like a, a definite semantic content to that, you know. Like I know what that means. You know what it means if I say that, you know. Um, or I could say if I was to sort of like interpret it a different way, because they sort of like I ha- I hallucinated and I thought I saw the Virgin Mary, so something I'd be primed to interpreting the firing of random neurons in my brain as meaning that, you know. These are both like yeah. You know, these are both ways of like narrativizing something like that away, you know. So, but with experiences like this, there's an element where like it kind of resists that. Like you can't. It, it feels like it definitely can't be one hundred percent. You know, whatever, um, whatever like um, mystical or religious or whatnot uh, worldview you possess. Like you can't just like interpret it that through through, through that. Uh, at the same time, it feels like you can't just explain it away by references to neurochemistry because it feels like the events were too yeah they're, they're kind of too precise. They and like they, it doesn't seem to work with the character or the history of the person that they like that they have some kind of undiagnosed lesion in their brain or something like that. Mm-hmm. They're just again they're just kind of fucking weird, right? There's a certain um, and there's a certain pranks prankster ishness to them you know like it's very this is 40 you know this is the 14 experience right you know it's 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 um seeing you know ufos are one thing but rains of fish or something else entirely right like seeing a ufo in the sky like what's well, a ufo you know have that but like it fucking rained mallard on my house last night what the fuck's that you know there's and actually i'd say like in terms of like the recent yeah, mallards live in the sky though so that's not that weird what do i what do i say Mal- mallards are kind of duck aren't they yeah what do i mean mackerel i'm not yeah mackerel or any, I mean, or like, any like, Pil- pilchards? Pilchards? Sardines? But still, it would be very weird that like, a lot of the mallards just sort of like, on my... Yeah. Yeah, but... Oh, they... <laughs> I did mean a fish, and I just sort of... I, 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 confuse, I confuse several entities together there, so there you are. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> oh, I would call that a mallard as mallard charm. Yeah, you could. Oh, dear. You could. Anyway, uh, I would say that, oh, like, oh in terms of... Right, in terms of films... In terms of recent films, yeah. uh, I'd say kind of like Nope is kind of like in this territory. I'm thinking about Nope. Nope's kind of in this territory, especially as it kind of like starts off with, well actually though it starts off with a rain of strange metallic objects, which I was like, mm-hmm. it, that is like 101 Charles IV, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of like weird rains, that is the thing, right? I was so, that was so like, <laughs> yeah, when that happened. Uh, and then it kind of leads us down the garden path and this year of a sort of like, oh, so it's fun saucer. And then he just, as it progresses, he goes, no, it isn't. 
it's it's a it's a kind of a, it's an animal. It's a you know it's you know, it's a plasma jellyfish that lives in the sky and might also be an angel. Uh, you know that's mm-hmm. that's kind of like much much more the kind of territory we're in, right? Sort of like mm-hmm. it being something that you kind of just like. I mean, although that the film does kind of like gives an explanation saying you know, it's just like a thing that lives here. You know, sort of like that people have like interpreted different ways, but it like has a. But at the same time, I think like aesthetically, that's like the closest you could get to it, except for the film that we're talking about. Right? Just a quick side note, like that's like not unknown to UFO law, like the, the well that that theory of it being kind of like biological, oh, yeah. being biological oh, yeah. and it's kind of like it's one of those things that sort of kind of makes more sense than these are actively piloted craft, and that these are like it's the these best. are creatures that are like you know toying with you as if you know like 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 a particularly intelligent animal such as a um such as a crow or an octopus yes exactly yeah Yeah. and they fuck up sometimes and get killed on overhead wires or something like that it was the it was the first given theory as well after that yes after the after the um, arnold no prior to that after the food fighters at the end of world war uh, in the beginning and the sorry during the during the air conflict of um of world war two um the USAF's study, or the, the the hypothesis that was given that seemed to fit the best was, they're just animals that live in the sky. They sometimes they're aggressive, sometimes they're frightened, sometimes they're curious. They just they don't have a plan. They just react as if you react as if you've encountered a new type of animal that you haven't seen before. Yeah. And and it's uh, the reason that Nope is such a cool film. Well, for the many reasons. Is because it resurfaces that theory, which yeah, is yeah. a really useful one to have. Knocking I mean, this is, I mean, like in the air, it, like, yeah, it is my favorite film of his. I think it is his best film, actually. Um, is, and and the thing that just tickled me so much when, when I was watching it was the realization of just like how actually like proper real deep Jordan Peele's nerd shit goes. Like, Ooh, so like it's yeah. not no, it's not aliens. No, they're plasma jellyfish that live in the sky. So like, oh, fuck yeah, it's red. It's like fourteen times, isn't it? You know. It is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Uh, all of this, okay, let's, 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 let's bring us back down to terra firma a little bit here. So, you know, what Davis calls us to do in the book is not to take these things literally, but to take them seriously, you know, sort of like to try and un- understand these events, these experiences on their own terms. You know, we should be good phenomenologists and go to the things themselves on this. You know, we should just let the phenomena speak for itself and try to understand it on its own terms, right? But here's but, but the thing with these experiences, like what the thing that makes them so fascinating and so compelling is that sense that you can't bite them down any further than what they are. It feel they make it they appear to suggest that there's something kind of just fundamentally unstable about the world and about knowledge. You know that that's you know that you the fact that you can't successfully proposal a narrative that explains them feels like that's the point almost the fact that like you can't just collapse it into your esoteric pet esoteric theory or your pet neurophysiology theory they feel like as uh, as as raw facts that they are demonstrating that there are absolute limits to our ability to understand the world and maybe that the inability to understand is kind of goes deeper than the ability to understand does and that is where we move into the horror territory of this you know the sense of terror here but like what you know, if you start to like you know do the lovecraftian thing you know you know the, um, the uh, connection of disparate pieces of knowledge right the picture that starts to emerge it's not of anything in particular but almost that's kind of the point like the the suggestion is almost that <sighs> The, that that we just we will never actually be able to grasp what the world is. We won't. Mm-hmm. 
we think like and we have erected all of these grand edifices of theory and knowledge but they are all completely arbitrary and the and they can't we can't make any kind of claim of platonic truth of them because to go back to William James and it's all like the pragmatist position that they they work for as long as they work and one day they might not and then we will see that these things were never true in the way we wanted them to be. They were just useful ways of thinking and speaking and acting. But then, some, but then the reality of the world shows its depth a little bit more when we realise the um, the incompleteness of our ability of, of of our previous categories of thought and speech. Right. So um, just to take us back, pull us ever so slightly back to that other kind of high weirdness. High weirdness as a cultural moment. So in our last episode, we talked a lot about the 70s as like the paranoiac um, enclosing of uh, possibilities after the explosion of possibilities of the 60s. Uh, but it would be unfair and just wrong to suggest that the 70s were just this prolonged period of like foreclosure and curtailment because there were people like Philip K. Dick and Terence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson and the Discordians and Subgenius and all of that. There are a lot of people who were pushing it, you know, against the countervailing tendencies and were pushing, you know, to keep the whatever the flame that turned on during the consciousness explosion of the 60s was alive, who are still pushing for the pushing to continue to explore the depths of possibility of living of experience of thought and so on I would maybe um, count that I think there's plenty of evidence that like a lot of that shit was fully co-opted by that moment that you're talking about oh yes and, that, and the, the Discordian movement and the subgenius church they were infiltrated as shit right they, were, they weren't spontaneous they weren't um, um, natural they were they had already been co-opted by that point and and their activity points in some fairly um, unsavoury directions after that moment. Um, but who were they co-opted by? So, what's his name? Yagiza, who started the Discordian movement. Um, Wait, no, 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 this is... Um, what's his name? What's his name? Ferry. Uh, he's, he, no, he's not. He's uh, Omar Khayyam uh, Ravenwoods. The one who was friends with Lee Harvey. That's Oswald. him, yeah. 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 Uh, what was his name? Um, yeah, they talked about him on Behind the Bastards recently. Yeah, uh, it'll come to me. I can picture his face. Kerry Wendell. Kerry, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, like he, like yeah. he was just a spook. He was just he was just an army guy who was just taken and well, was I brain mean, brain bombed. I mean, I'm not talking, and then sent out into the wild. Okay, I'm not talking about him though. I'm talking about Bob Wilson, though, aren't I? I'm talking about people. But he got many of his like, but they were buddies. They were but, partners. Yeah, okay, but like the point the point I'm making the point I'm trying to make as my like <laughs> as my sort of like stepping stone to go back into the Morphine prophecies. Is okay, like, there are lots of people in the seventies who are still <laughs> doing. What about Big Elite? I'm still stuck on that. There are a lot of people in the fucking 70s who were still like pushing for the weird shit to still be weird because it's cool. I, I'll, I'll give you that for now. Thank you. Amongst whom, and we can say, and I know you have so much you want to fucking say about this guy, So, but at the same time, this is just like my little fucking segue into the next bit of the podcast. So mm. if you'll indulge me. I, I, forgive me. Amongst whom, of course, was one John Keel, the author of a book called The Mothman Prophecies. And the thing, and the thing is like, the book, The Mothman Prophecies, has to be located 
in the 70s high weirdness countercultural movement, whatever we probably want to say about that, because you are right, like, you know, I'm not making too much of a big, like, claim about it. Because, like, although the events uh, of Pleasant, like, supposedly happened in, like, the late 60s, but he fucking writes the book in 1974 and comes out in 75, I think it is. Yeah. That's the moment it's in, you know. That, oh, that's, yeah, 100%. That's the moment it comes out of. Uh, more than uh, um, more than the uh, more than coming out of the sixties itself. So, okay, with so with that in place, like Lucy, what, what's the name of the film we're talking about? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, it happens to share the name with that book being the Mothman Prophecies. Mark Pellington, two thousand two. That sounds about right. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Sergeant, I'm curious. Last night you said things had been strange around here lately what kind of things oh you really don't want to know mr klein <laughs> no i really need to know it's just your odd reports people seeing things they can't explain so they they all come to me because you're the cop because they know me you know there are other people in this town who are feeling as, as um, confused as I am right now. I should like to hear it. The past few months, people have been coming up to me and reporting that they've been saying strange things. And I'm not talking about the town speed freak. I'm talking about good, honest, church-going people. Now, I've known these folks my entire life, and they seem downright embarrassed to be bringing it up. Bringing what up? It's hard to explain. The Mothman Prophecies follows the experiences of John Klein, a reporter for the Washington Post. Driving with his wife Mary one evening close to Christmas, they witness a vision of a large moth-like creature whose appearance causes them to break violently. While being treated for a subsequent concussion, Mary is discovered to have an advanced glioblastoma and is given only a few months to live. During the final weeks of her life, she begins drawing an increasingly disturbing series of images depicting an ominous black winged figure with glowing red eyes, I think. A year later, Klein ba- like still grieving the death of his wife, Klein bails on a work Christmas party to travel overnight to Richmond, Vi- VA, uh, Virginia, Virginia uh, for an interview the following morning. Becoming lost, he calls in at a house to ask directions, but is suddenly and violently apprehended by a man living there who swears blind that Klein and none other has been approaching the house and harassing its inhabitants over the past several nights, on each occasion arriving at the exact same time. When eventually extricated through the intervention of a local police chief, uh, whose name I didn't write down, he learns that he has in fact travelled to an inconceivable distance across the state, finding himself on the Kentucky-Virginia border. This incident is the first of a series of baffling occurrences in and around Point Pleasant over the subsequent few weeks, over which looms the quote-unquote Moth Man, a creature resembling the thing Klein and Mary witnessed a year earlier, who spends the week on a rampage of high strangeness, terrifying teenagers of their dogs, giving them pink eye and rashes and burns, knocking over bins, invading people's dreams and waking minds, and predicting disastrous events through his preternatural co-conspirator, one Indrid Cold. The film concludes as the last of these predictions, the collapse of the Silver Bridge, comes horribly to fruition.
more and that is it, yeah. That is the thing, yeah. There's other bits, but like... There's lots of, like, there's a film, there's a film of bits. There's yeah. lots of bits, it's, it, yeah, there's lots of yeah, yeah. I mean, do we want to just have a quick note about, like, adaptation as in, like, what's different here? I mean, like, we've relocated the events to 2002. Uh, much of it remains the same, but uh, I don't know if you had a bit prepared, but, like, they, they kind of split up the character because, like, you know, principally, um, it's, like, I want to say autobiographical? No, it's just like his own experiences. It's him going to looking at things and yeah. interviewing people about what happened. Yeah, because like, like Bob, you actually you actually read the book. Uh, I, I read the book many years ago. I got pretty far into it. I didn't. I didn't. It's it's not a great book. I hate to say there's it's some. Not the fickle finger or the finger of fate by any means, which was John Keel's kind of pornographic Batman parody. Oh, that sounds like <laughs> I would have spent better time reading that. Extraordinary. <laughs> yes, okay. it's yes a book I never managed to. Finish either because it's, it's it's not not the only Batman connection with Mothman prophecy. No, oh, no, no, indeed. Indrid Cold being the Bruce Wayne in the equation, basically. Yeah. Um, the yeah, they so it's um, a series of experiences that like John Keel, um, who wasn't a reporter for the Washington Post, no, he was a reporter for like some ham radio shows. Yeah, and not and neither was he as handsome as um, Richard Gere either. Um, the thing is like. They split the character into two, like you say, but Keel himself was reasonably happy with the way that the film captures what he described as the atmosphere of the town in the run-up to it, which I think is the important thing. Yes. It you know, also like, made him look incredible. Yeah, like, he's like, and I am delicious in it, and that's the main thing. Um, but uh, the, 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 no, I was going to say the subplot, but it's not really the subplot. The plot about it being connected to his dead wife, about about Mothman being kind of triggered by a sense of mourning and loss and existing in this kind of space where his kind of like spiritual healing can, or, uh, or emotional healing can kind of bring the, the Mothman event to a, to a head. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all completely grafted on by the filmmakers and that, that's yeah. what the adaptation kind of adds. And then it, obviously it does an interesting thing where it takes... Keel's character as a man in 1965 and 66 doing these investigations and sorry 1966 and 67 and then again in 74 writing them up into a novel and then the John Keel that was alive during 2002 when the film came out and splitting those up into the characters of Richard Gere as the main kind of primary but then as old man Keel. Yes. Uh, is Leek. Yes, Alexander Leek. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a miracle of cryptography <laughs> how they managed to disguise the surname there. Yeah. Um, played by Alan Bates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's the. Uh, cre- like, he's like, I mean, he's, I've, got, I've got stuff I've got, I've got to come on to him uh, uh, later, but yeah, like, he is the wide eyed, like, madman who has been, like, Looks at you know much like a moth to the flame has been uh, has been has got his fingers burnt by this whole thing right and it's just very much like I, I do not have anything to fucking do with this anymore you know like, get get this away from me which is which is a bit like what Keel was like then but yeah. also you know I don't think that Keel was terribly enamoured of the betrayal of himself by Alan Bates because it makes him look I think a bit more mad than he would have liked to have thought of himself as. Yeah. Or despite having a broadly similar view on the, the dangers, like real or unreal, 
of being too close to this type of investigation. I think Alan Bates is very he he steals the the scenes uh, in in this film. He's yeah, he's very, the best thing in it. My mom. He's, 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 yeah, he's really good. I have a lot of like I've got like like a lot of fondness for Laura Linney for being in this film. Like she's not like I'm like she's the police chief. She's the police chief. Mm. Like mm. she's just someone I always keep an eye out for because I really like. Like it's a film I absolutely love, and it's very much like. <laughs> It's Lauren Lilly. Oh, it's Lauren Lilly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so she, she, a... was, she was uh, Frasier's last love interest in the last season of Frasier. So there we go. She's a very stabilising presence in anything that she turns up in. Yeah. She just feels she's got a very cosy feel about her. Yeah, good old reliable Lauren Lilly. Hmm. Uh, I think, and Richard Gere's Richard Gere, you know, he's perfectly good, isn't he? But yeah, it's, my uh, big like, kind of Mandela effect thing of my life has been the fact that I remember vivid memories of Harrison Ford playing John Klein in this. <laughs> <laughs> oh well it's very like um, witness, right? Yeah. In the way that he in the way that he's like a big city sophisticate being forced back into kind of Hicksville, USA. Maybe mm. I watched the witness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, right. Let's, right. Let, let's talk about let's talk about setting a little bit. So so far this season we've done burgeoning internet weirdness of the nineties. We've done paranoiac 1970s, and now welcome to the early 2000s, back when we all knew things were going to get fucked, but we didn't know quite how yet, right? That's, mm. That sums up the, you know, the mood of the film, you know, deep sense of our needs about everything, and a growing sense that the world is just far less knowable and predictable than we thought it was. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what this film, that's what's going on in this film. This is a post 9-11 movie. This is this is a film about 9-11, like it is. It, it just fucking is a film about 9-11. It's a film about America after 9-11. It's about the failure of history to deliver on its promises. It's about post-millennial anxiety and malaise and the sense of failure and collapse that comes after the fall of the Twin Towers, right? And like, this is before the invasion of Iraq, obviously. This is 2002, but this but is... The dossier's in the oven. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> the like the tone of the film is so it's a very so this is something you can answer for me actually, Bob. Like the, the 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 film's tone and this is like it's very eerie and it's very mournful, like we've already said. I don't what what I did read of the book, and this was some years ago, I don't remember that coming from it. I remember the book having a certain wryness or irony. Would is that how is that how you would describe it? Uh, oh uh, yeah for sure. No, like the book is absolutely a um an artifact of the high weirdness moment that you're talking about with its very like um it, it's it's sixties optimism is waning but it's but it's kind of enjoying the um the pleasures of the cynicism of the Nixon era. So so it has a wry sense of humour to it. There's a the, it, it it gets exasperated and it leads you into some very um kind of um, potentially unsettling thoughts when he's kind of describing just the sheer uh, fuckedness of the of the um, of the trap that he feels like he's walking into so frequently. But he kind of handles that with like a wry sense of humour and with a certain detachment. So, so although the book is um, uh, mixes like the playfulness of like, ooh, UFOs aren't they fun? With hang on a minute, there's something a bit spooky going on here, and and, and it's unsettling it certainly doesn't have that the millennial piece is very much a graft of the filmmakers yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. do we want to go into some examples of the kind of the, the, the weird shit that um you know def- well like kind of the wryness and the weirdness and how that guys i mean like because i i mean when you said that my first thought was like 
the opening, well, that scene I described um, in you know, the getting apprehended at the house and the guy insisting yeah. that he'd been there before, uh, that's like loosely based on like the first um, story that's not even really part of the main narrative. No, it's him. Yeah, because like the, like the, the book, The More Fine Prophecies, begins with John uh, Keel um, describing a ma- ma- men in black encounter of, you know, a strange man of an out of town accent arrives at your door at sort of like two, two o'clock yeah. in the morning and say, hey, can I use your and phone? He... And then he does a bait and switch and he says, and that dear reader was me. Yeah. Uh, like, sort of like, so my car broke down and I was on my, cause I was on my way to Point Pleasant because I heard about the weird shit there. Like, I really freaked a guy out quite. And he doesn't, it's a cute little thing. You know? It's a cute little thing, but it's also like, it's also a little bit of an admission. Like, within the kind of the, the books, um, pleasant, not place that word, intriguing, let's say, um, use of like Twilight language and its, and its kind of constant desire to keep the reader off foot, mm-hmm. to keep fucking with you and confusing you as to what you're actually trying to read. It feels like an early admission of like, oh, by the way, I am the man in black. And like, yeah. yes, oh, yeah. I, am, yeah. I am the one doing this. Mm-hmm. And whether he's and you get a really weird sense of how or a very difficult sense of how compartmentalized Keel is throughout the, his description of the stuff that's happening to him. So Although like, he seems yeah. in on a lot of it, he also seems not in on certain key pieces of information, or he's just not writing about yeah. it. Yeah. And that's and, an interesting thing. Like if we just want to go back into a bit of like kind of like the life of John Keel up to that point, like the fact that he started out in like I, I mean I've just only really glanced into his like biography, but like his like kind of. His radio stuff was very much in a kind of like, it was very showman-y. It was very kind of like, yeah, mm. um, that that kind of like keeping people on their toes, creating an illusion, partially letting people in on stuff, but also, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's got that kind of like American uh, huckster energy, yeah, which is a peculiarly so. like, a peculiarly American um, oh, yeah. manifestation of, of the trickster figure that we might kind of think of. You would put him in a similar bracket to someone like James Randi, who kind of had this outward scepticism but was also quite happy to use his training in uh you know um, close-up magic to keep people kind of unaware of what his actual uh thread would be in any given kind of topical or situation he also has a bit of a feel around you know he's got the same mustache as uh anton lavey or someone like that who's kind of involved in a similarly like theatrical exploration He's, of the world we Because it's the, the air of the travelling salesman, to, you know, sort of like sure. the... Um, Especially because he turns up in this quiet town and sells them a story about Mothman, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. Like this, and, and you could almost like, I mean, because, you know, the, so much of the American experience is somewhat nomadic or at least itinerant, you know, so yeah. like, so there's a lot of... There's a lot of cultural sort of like a weight to that kind of figure. So like, you know, like the, the traveling revival minister even sort of like, you know, the, the traveling revival ministry, the snake handling ministry, you know, mm-hmm. going around town, going around sort of like especially like rural backwaters and so on. Like, um, yeah, but the, that's a very embedded in the American cultural experience. Yeah. And, and I feel like, like Mothman feels like a retelling of that classic American story in many ways. Yeah. It's, worth, it's worth mentioning that like his only training appears to have been as a military propagandist and working in the Korean War. And it's like, okay, like, mm-hmm. okay, like, remember that. Of all of the things that we know John Keel was, he was somebody who was trained in the art of military propaganda. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, tells us quite a lot about what the events that happened in Point Pleasant at the time, regardless of what happened in the film later, um, are about. Yeah, so to, to take us back to the film a little bit, though, the... Um, 
just just to pick back up on that thread about you know post millennial post nine eleven mm. unease and again the sense of and you know you, you you should be detecting themes here, listener. You know the sense of the world is unknowable, like at a quite deep level, and like the predictability is always profoundly limited. You know. History, you know, and this is a recurring theme in this podcast, history was meant to have ended, but then it just keep, kept on fucking happening, mm-hmm. right? And we traded the Cold War for the War on Terror and so on. And just like, it just keeps, it looks like things just keep on kind of like getting worse in ever more unpredictable cycles of chaos and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually quite striking that Richard Gere is playing the reporter from the Washington Post who arrives in this town and discovers himself in this situation in which he is wholly unequipped to deal with. You know, just something complete, like a, a, a real, you know, outside context problem is ha- has happened here. So like, there is nothing. I have nothing for this. I have got all of my training, my Batman. Yeah, so like, he's a political journalist. He's like, he's going, he's going to Richmond to interview like the Democratic nominee for governor or something like yeah. that. And so he ends, and he ends up dealing with this shit. You know, so and he and he he is, you know, he is just such a fish out of water. Um, it feels like that's kind of the. So so kind of what the film does, it, it sort of tries to put this kind of like spiritualist lens on on the events of John Klein's like Richard Gere's character's life right whereby yeah. the, his the loss of his wife and the the prophetic and high weirdness events that are happening in this town are somehow linked and through his own emotional healing he can somehow solve it it can somehow end so he's kind of like dealing with all of this kind of like um, subconscious psychological baggage which has got having these manifestations in the real world and his, um, his kind of role as a political journalist is actually the thing that he's there to investigate. This is a town, Point Pleasant, which has been abandoned by the economic settlement of the post-war period because the, neo- the neoliberal era has taken all of that heavy industry, all of that chemical work, and is closing it down and offshoring it. Yeah. And that's one of the key moments, the key kind of threshold moments that 9-11 marks that, that you, know, you can either say... It's the end of the historical process whereby those factories are being closed down and outsourced. Curiously, or it's halfway through the process. So, so if I can make make, make my point, so the actual real town, Point Pleasant, in contrast to the film where the there's a lot of build up apparently around like the chemical plant's going to be where like the cataclysm happens and then it's actually the bridge collapsing with the chemical plant. But in the uh, in the actual book, real in real life, indeed, sort of like. the big failed or absent industry in Point Pleasant is munitions. Yeah, that was literally yeah, that's right. Um, exactly. Are we, are we they, gonna... see, they see because where people see the Mothman is in the place they call the TNT area, mm-hmm. um, that, which yeah, and which has a lot of thing against them. Like to use the overused word liminal qualities to it, it being the the out of somewhat out of bounds military esque industrial area where so people it's kind don't of industrial go. industrial complex, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> military industrial yeah. complex. It's also, right. And it's striking yeah. as well, like, this is also, like, this is where you go to get laid, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is, like, this is make-out points, you know, like, where the town's local teams go to, to go, and, and so on. And that is something that literally happens mm-hmm. in the film. Like, the clearest glimpse you get of what the creature looks like as it's incredibly sparing of showing you it which is one of the strengths of the film yeah. is this young couple who who like and they just say okay look we took our car out to this old quarry to fuck and this is what happened and mm. it gets uh, and yeah, this is sort of like where fun stuff we got more fun stuff but like stuff with like taboos and sexuality kind of like are nodded at by the film you know but there is something yeah but there is something to you know, sexual activities that can somehow like um, provoke this 
thing somehow. And something that he is talked about or talks a lot about in the book and is completely absent from the film is Keel claims that uh, a preponderantly large number of people who encountered the Mothman were women on their menstrual cycle, women on their mm. period. Uh, and he does that, nothing yeah. with that exactly. He just kind of, and that's but it's also kind of like part of the high weirdness thing of it, sort of like the Mothman is something like you're much more likely to see the Mothman if you're on your period. Is it really, is it, yeah. There's also um, that thing, well, it's, this was on Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, but like that's also like one of the things uh, that Bigfoot hunters talk about, the fact that like Bigfoots tend to kind of, they seem to have some affinity with women on their periods, that they're attracted to menstrual blood specifically, and, or something like that, but also it's like maybe that's something, that's just one interpretation, it's like something else happening there, but also, you know, Bigfoot's another thing, you know, in like, in more advanced cryptid lore, <laughs> where, uh, I mean, How like, dare you? How dare you denigrate the Mothman? What was the kind of, like, the, the UFO flap thing that was covered recently in the last podcast on the left, where I'm getting most of oh. my episode? <laughs> yeah, I know you're doing something like the Bigfoot UFO flap. Yeah, Bigfoot UFO flap, where it's, like, Bigfoots and UFOs kind of, like, having this kind of, like, sharing a moment, and it's, like, did the UFOs put the Bigfoots there? What the Bigfoots piloting the UFOs? <laughs> And it's like, well, you know, this is a UFO story, but there's a Mothman involved. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like, like yeah, it's a, it's a flap. It is a moth flap. Exactly. <laughs> the flap of large wings. But and, yeah. to, uh, and, to, and just to go, and to, to um, here's a sense that I thought I'd say, to return to the subject of menstruation. Uh, of course, one of the things that, like, if you really want to go proper sort of third eye about this, is, of course, Bob and I are both, of course, students of the great Kenneth Grant. The, 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 the <laughs> of of the, the master, the master himself, and uh, it, I like Kenneth, Kenneth Grant. He's one of those people I'm absolutely I'm obsessed with. Kenneth Grant, I like I actively collecting. I've I've got all all, all the Typhonium books that have been, been republished because uh, like just because they I'm 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 I'm, I'm odd. Mm -hmm. I'm odd. Anyway, but like one but what, the Menti is the Menti is special, yeah. and the Bigfoot's are horny. Like that's a thing that we that we definitely know. Exactly, 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 exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. yeah. I don't want to talk to I don't talk too much about this, but yeah, like, in Kenneth Grant's occult philosophy, his, yeah, he writes so, so much about um, pussy and menstruation and the rediscovery, like, he understood himself as reintroducing to Western esotericism, what had long been known by the tantric adepts of the East, which is that sort of like um, the, ver the, ver the various discharges from the vagina are all of them, all of them of high, high occult value. And his mm. entire his entire system is a set fundamentally is shaped around sort of like what time of the season are you are, are you going down on your wife? Basically, it's like that's like that's and the various magical properties from imbuing. Uh, imbibing these, uh, yes, exactly. I'm a homosexual, so this is all highly abstract to me. But his whole thing uh, is like, what if, what if Crowley but straight? What if Crowley for the boy? But yeah. actually, is that that, that, that is him like so much? And like, it's like Grant's yeah. like leg, like like I know that um, Phil Hine, for instance, is like used like Grant, you know, not incorrectly of homophobia. So like, not like there'd been like there's something inherently homophobic in in his 
work as, uh, in his work because he's very much about sort of conserving the vital fluids and so on through uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and Crowley Crowley never never conserved a single vital fluid like, I think I think it's worth taking Grant Except kind of a face value which is that like all of the all of the potentially sinister and and uh, just like like ultimate level misogynistic stuff that you can kind of read into Palima as such Grant's well into it yeah, and like, and it's not okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the guy. I just, mm. I'm just obsessed with <laughs> like the deep, deep abiding obsession with Kenneth Branagh. Uh, I kind of get that uh, Michael Staley, who runs his publisher, seems like a lovely man, though. So there you go. Right. If there's any any weird chance that Michael that Michael Staley's listening to this. Keep up the good work. Your lectures are really interesting. Anyway, on Lucy. the subject of like people we don't like, we're positioning. <laughs> Are we, do we feel like Keel is closer to a Kenneth Grant or closer to a Colin Wilson? Oh. <laughs> oh, I that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is, like, I like Kenneth Brown. I just yeah. think he's like weird and wrong. But like, like I guess the question here is: Do we? Do you like John Keel as a guy? <laughs> I don't. know. Oh, I'm going to say no, probably. Uh, like, he definitely. No. definitely the air. I just not the self. Okay, mm. the difference between him and Colin Wilson is he doesn't have the self seriousness of because that's the main thing that makes me hate Colin Wilson is his ap- like. Absolute conviction of his real historical importance. Can you can you hate this face? I'm so, <laughs> this extreme. No, fuck it. I know. I like I, I, I like John Key. I like the fact that he was so obviously a fraud. You know, and just yeah. I had so much fun with it. And again, sort of like he's <laughs> just just absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Unlike Colin Wilson, who did not, who was convinced of his own importance. I don't. I think John Keel just was having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Uh, I don't trust John Keel either. But like his, but his persona. Is certainly much more likable than, uh, and, and uh, which comes across both in the kind of the uh, the wounded gear, the irascible baits, and the um, the playful. Hey, I'm just a guy who's interested in UFOs. That he kind of actually presents himself as in interviews or or, or through his you know through his authorial voice. Yeah. Um, uh, but I do think he's a liar and a bullshitter, and I do think that everything that he's writing about is. Um, Sinister? Is that the word I'm going to use again? I don't know. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, so I want to um, to take it again, just to take us back to the film, because like this is a the reason we're doing the Mothman prophecies is like fundamentally because I've been twisting Lucy's arm to let to let me do an episode of the Mothman <laughs> prophecies, basically. I'm kind of into it now that I've like, oh, there's all this shit we can talk about. Exactly. Because <laughs> like this is a film like I to get to to actually to wax to wax lyrical uh, um, for a bit. I this was. The fir- this wasn't the first horror movie I ever saw, but this is the first one I saw that really like affected me when I saw it. Like really, <laughs> really grabbed hold of me when I was like 14, 13 and 14 or something. You told me this, I deeply misinterpreted Okay, so Lucy this is the f- okay. This is the film that made me spooky. Lucy misremembered this is the film that made me gay. By which I mean, Lucy confused this with an unrelated anecdote about how Stephen King's The Stand is the book that made me gay. Um, <laughs> I was watching this with Max. <laughs> just, just, like, like, just the bit where the bridge collapses. It's like, yes. <laughs> I remember yeah. like, like, having, like, getting a load of really confused texts from Max 
aren't getting clarity for, for on this point. And when I explained to him, so I was like, no, Lucy's just misremembering. No, the Mothman prophecy may be spooky. Stephen King's The Stand may be gay. He simply replies, yes, it does make more sense that that not be true. Was how he puts it. <laughs> well, so there you uh, go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, okay, like, the thing, the, the film. Back to the notes, everyone. Are we done, we're, we're not done with 9-11, though. I like we're not done with 9-11. We'll come back to 9-11, but we're talking about... Because of the surveillance talking, thing. As you, can, as you can see, in the notes, I'm pointing to with my finger, we're on the bit called uh, the creepy shit yeah, now. Yeah, that's, okay. that's, that's okay. definitely something. Yeah, so, okay, like, where, where this film, like, exceeds expectations and where it earns its staying power is just how eerie and creepy the atmosphere becomes. Lister, as you can tell, I'm currently reading from the notes. Uh, the territory, we okay, this is weird America vibes, you know, we're talking, you know, the soul season sure, is about think we've been talking about. Exactly, you know, this is, well, we've been doing Fox America vibes, this is weird America vibes, you know, oh. you know Fox America vibes, via way of cursed England vibes, now we're in weird America vibes. These are, okay, this is the America of, it's, it's broken connections, you know, it's lonely, isolated farmsteads. This is where the film really becomes like a cousin to H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic horror. Right, this is where we really are placed, right? And the, because, you know, frequently in Lovecraft's writing, the rural is where the outside breaks in. You know, like the Dunwich Horror. There's stuff that but, happens in the, the, right. the stuff that happens but this in the isn't a rural space. It's an industrial space. And that's what's falling apart. And that's why the town's dying and crying. It's, I don't know, the this film, is, these aren't farmsteads. These are factory steads. Gordon, like the, exactly. no, Gordon, the character Gordon, the one who encounters injury cold. No, he has a fucking isolated little house. Yes, the and, and his and, land is poisoned by the TNT factory. And the thing is, as you well, don't put a the TNT thing, factory thing, next to anything you give a fuck about. I love it arguing about this film. The <laughs> thing, but the thing in particular, small town. Okay. It's a small. Okay, okay, there we go. Like yeah. it's, it's small town, and like it's factory small town. town. It's it small probably have like a, have been really really fucked over by. The um the oxycontin yeah prices. yeah but yeah the and the yeah exactly and but it's, but it's still like what's in rural I mean like it's located like it's it's a backwater right it is a small mm. isolated town in the middle of nowhere that's why I mean no by that. reception right? that's one of the ways that you know that it's going that. that Brian yes. is travelling back in time exactly. in space because nobody has a mobile there. Whereas exactly. in his Washington life he's like, yes, we have much better tech. And actually, and uh, yeah, sort of like, uh, and uh, the police chief, Connie, uh, Lord Libby's character, but actually, and, you know, fucking, you're, you're quite right because they have that exchange where, where she, sa she says to him, sort of like, oh, I'm from here, <coughs> I, I grew up in a, like a, a, a house over the hill. And he says, oh, on the farm. And she says, so like, no, shucks, it was a real house. We even had shoes for schools and church. Mm. You know, so like, yeah, you're quite right. So, but at the same time, like, this is, like, it's coded in a particular way, right? And the, on the, the DVD, I, and I still have the DVD of this film that I had when I was a teenager. Like, it's still, like, there's a lovely little um, behind-the-scenes documentary of, like, interviews with people, like, who live in Point Pleasant, like people who mm. uh, like saw the thing. I think and I something it yesterday. Yeah, and something yeah. that they like emphasize it, it, it's, it's sort of like you know they, they talk about sort of like the fact they are characterized you know, as, as hillbillies, as like the, you know the hill folk, the hill people, mm. you know. And so no, but they're, you know, like they're not. They are they they're, they're just fucking people, right? And the and this is some actually this no, is something specifically like modern Americans about to be destroyed by the end. Exactly. Of that era. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, this is still this is still like quite an archetypal Lovecraftian or at least like post Lovecraft like location, right? For something like this, having a place, you know, either you know, for Lovecraft it would be like, you know, to use his kind of terminology, like a degenerate farming community or fishing community, you know, somewhere 
disconnected from the metropole yeah, yeah. whose industrial or agricultural basis has kind of fallen apart somehow and they're just and the atavistic instincts are taking over. It's, um, that's yeah. what, yeah, sort of like, that's how these places are coded. Like, and obviously, like, that's all, all everything, I, everything yeah. I just said there, you know, that's how Lovecraft understands these, understands these things, because Love, you know, Lovecraft's worldly being a racialist, fascistic one, he can only understand things in terms of sort of like, either sort of like, ascension or degeneration. It may yeah, not but, be Innsmouth, but it is probably close to Kingsport. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of, like, that's, that's the, the way that, uh, this is kind of presented, if nothing else, and you know, and uh, you know, I'm not saying I don't, I'm not, I, don't I just I don't, don't want to come across like any casting aspersions of the character of people who happen to live somewhere that's been fucked over by global capitalism, basically. But okay, the point of all of this was sort of like talk of, of all of that was just to try and place this film kind of like in generic terms, like related to the Lovecraft mode, Lovecraft thing, right? And that's the thing that like really because I must have seen this film about the same time I, I first like read Lovecraft. And the staying power of both of those um, properties, want of a better word for me, came from the fact that um, it's not a werewolf or it's not a vampire, it's not uh, a ghost. You know, sort of like the thing that like really smacks you over the head when you read Lovecraft as a teenager for the first time is that it's none of these things. It's uh, it's a plastic entity that lives in one of the, in, in the interior of one of the moons of Neptune. You know, it's something absolutely removed from. Mm -hmm all everything you've been prepared for culturally and socially religiously scientifically no it is something no it is you know that's you know cthulhu like you talk, you talk about cthulhu talks about in terms of a god but cthulhu is an extra extra dimensional being composed of a different kind of matter is what cthulhu is you know that's that's and then it's shog and yeah, shoggoths again so like they're kind of living plastic you know that's the that's that's the thing that like people get that hooked um people on lovecraft you know that just the absolute originality of the alienness of what mm -hmm. you deal with in Lovecraftian horror. It's not it's not Christian ultimately. It's not Christian or post-Christian. It is it is you know the horror of the scientific age, the horror of the realization that the world has existed for uh, a billion years longer than human beings have. You know, that's that's Lovecraftian terror, right. Um, the and the film as well because the, the thing is like one of the things that we we've not addressed yet is just the question, okay, but what the fuck is the Mothman? In the film, what is the Mothman? And we are never given an answer because the point is, well, we, we are given a lot of sort of gestures towards an answer, but the point is always that it can't, that's not something that you can ever actually give a explanation for because it exceeds the possibility of human understanding. And I, there is, when he goes to meet Alexander League, like he is like the expository font for all of this. And I have like a lot of, so you're just gonna to have to bear with me while I just read through this list of bullet points. He calls them outside intelligences. He says of them, they are a normal condition of the planet. They're just not part of our consensus of physical reality. He describes at one point as being, I calls them, they are like the nocturnal butterfly that guides the soul through the hellish death realms. Actually, we're going to come. We'll cycle back to that very quickly because there's some Batman stuff down there you want to talk about. Well, um, <laughs> as for why they're Lovecraft stuff, I'm going to bring it that. As for why they're bothering Richard Gere, he just says you notice them, and they notice that you notice them. Where the film really brushes against Lovecraft territory, he just when he Gear asks him why, why are we doing this, he says their motivations aren't human. 
Leek, uh, he fit again, this is quite, he's a very, like we said, he's a classically Lovecraftian character in lots of ways, like, he's a scientist, he's a physicist, he was a theoretical physicist, he was like a, a, a person of respected academic authority who encounters these things and he tries to account for them scientifically, like he says, look, I, I, have ever, I had evidence of it, I had recordings of their voices speaking to me, and he's driven to the point of madness by trying to understand that and eventually concludes, we're not allowed to know. And he says he just had to stop because otherwise, for the sake of living at all, any kind of life. And he says he just destroys himself through this. Like he lost all academic credibility. His marriage failed. Uh, his kids don't speak to him. That's all just fucking gone now because you know, And he just realized, no, no, I just had to. I just had to stop. Um, and again, actually, like John Klein as a character, again, quite classically Lovecraftian because he's a journalist. That is like academics and journalists are the two kinds of Lovecraft characters, right? This is your um, Cthulhu, like, board game kind of uh, party <laughs> assembly. You just need, like, a gun-toting hillbilly or, like, I don't know, maybe a carnival barker just to kind of join you in this. And the other fucking thing that... And, and this is just me talking about how much I love this film now because I do love this film so much. Um... And a very, again, a very Lovecraftian touch is there's there's a lot of implication that they haven't, that these things, the entities, the outside intelligences, I very Kenneth Grantian uh, phrased that, um, they have a kind of affinity with electricity is something that's implied a lot. Like they, they have a different kind of relationship with electricity to us. Um, the voice, when he gets a phone call from Indrid Cold, this strange man that um, Gordon, the man who uh, threatens him to start the film, keeps meeting, he has this very, it's the best scene in the film, it's genuinely very, very, very scary where he gets this phone call from this very alien sounding voice who identifies himself as injured cold. He records it, like again, he does it like quite look like he has physical evidence of this. I and mean, he takes it to get analysed in a sound lab and the guy says, so like, this was, the voice on the phone was not the product of human vocal cords, it's an electrical impulse. That he was not talking to a human being there, but it has some kind of affinity of electricity. These things can't ever really be seen in a reliable way. It, when he asks Indra Cold, what do you look like? He says, that depends on who's looking. Um, you know, because like he is the moth, it is the same thing. It's the thing that people are seeing as the mothman. What, this is who he's encountering as Indra Cold, who Gordon has encountered as Indra Cold. Um, and when, yeah, when they have this, um, he has a kind of preternatural knowledge of what Klein is doing when they're speaking on the phone. He can like, like he can successfully guess what object he's holding or look up a line in the book he's reading or something like that. And this is the most scariest bit in the whole fucking film for me. He asks him, can you read my mind? And Indra Cole replies, I don't need to, do I? Because he's in the fucking room with him. <laughs> and he's, he's not talking to anyone on the phone. Like this thing is right there with him, with its appendage, its pseudopod. Hmm. You know, it's just in his phone manipulating the electronics to speak to him, and it's there with him. It's fucking. It's such a disturbing moment of realizing that you know it is right there next to you right now. And it, if it did not, if it did not want you to know, you would not know it was there with you, right? Still more proof, turn current. That is the best bit in the film, but it requires you to um, take the film at its word. And I think that the film isn't good at convincing you to do that. It, it like, the whole thing looks to me like it's a, it's a film about technology, a film about a transition between two states of technology from the pre-digital to the digital, a transition from 
communication from being wired and walled to mobile and a realisation that literally everything... Because the, the, the reason the film fails on a dramatic level for me is because too much of it is about Richard Gere looking at his phone and crying. And that's not that exciting to, as, like, cinematically. But, like, like, not, like, Mothman isn't real at all. It's just a psyop, and it's just being done by tapping people's phones and putting bugs in people's rooms. And, like, and the 9-11 thing is significant because it's the demarcation point whereby that level of surveillance, which, had pre- which during 1966 and 1974 had been limited to, uh, you know, specific use cases, was suddenly just legalised. Was but just made Patriot Act by about two or three years. What does this film? Yeah, but it was in. But the yeah, that was like a post fact. I know. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it became okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd expect a Washington Post journalist to say. <laughs> but the just okay before well, before we okay actually there's two things I want to talk about in a moment. Like one is to go back to the Batman thing very quickly. But like the last thing because what I'm saying with all of this like I feel here is like. The, this is this again is the high weirdness thing. The thing the the sense of encountering something that just you realise there are things that just will always destabilise the your ability to have a comprehensive picture of the world at all ever. Uh, and because like the the line that sums up the whole philosophy of the film right is when Richard is having this all explained to him by Laura Linney that all the weird crap that he's happening in the town like. The Mothman is like an eight foot tall winged humanoid glowing red eyes. Um, like there's the shopkeeper who keeps on hearing like these creaking howls from, like, on his phone and stuff. But the line that sums it all up is when she is showing him these very frightening sketches people have done of the Mothman. And she says to him, maybe we can cut this line in actually, but... There have been weird lights, strange phone calls, you. Seeing a UFO is one thing. What do you do when someone comes into your office and tells you they saw this in their backyard? That's the high weirdness moment, right? Right there, the fact that like it's like, it, like she even says like, if someone sees a flying saucer, you can deal with that. You can deal with someone seeing a flying saucer. What the fuck are you meant to do when someone has an encounter with an eight foot tall winged human or your glowing red eyes? That's 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 the the high weirdness thing. The Batman thing. Just before we drop this point, so we've indicated it a couple of times. Is the film is a, is is like like we've said we've kind of said without saying exactly the film is a work of sort of like mythologization of the book in a certain sense and like it really kind of creates Mothman as the meme in a certain sense you know like the idea of what the, of what we think of when we think of Mothman more than the book does but here's the curious thing about it is the when he's talking to Alexander Leake. Um, Leek says, like, because they need, okay, the film needs a reason about why it's called The Mothman Prophecies, and it can't be the actual reason of why this thing is called The Mothman. In the film, the explanation is given is sort of like, it's a, it's a psychopomp, you know, moths and butterflies are psychopomps, they are, in classical like, mythology, they are the entities that guide the soul through to the next life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says that, you know, uh, the name Mothman comes from Ukrainian folklore in particular, so like, that's why uh, it's called yeah. that. In and real life, no Chernobyl as well. They, but, well, yeah, that's oh, like yeah, one yeah, of the yeah, bits yeah. that crept into the law that is also a complete invention of the film. Why it's actually called Mothman is because of a joke headline when the first people said they saw this thing. The newspapers dubbed it the Mothman because Batman's villain that week was a guy in a wingsuit called the Mothman. That's why. Really? That's yeah. where the name comes from. Are you so, sure? Yes. That is why. Was it not just that? that I'm, go, I'm, not, I'm immediately going to the phone for that. Uh, is that not just because Batman was the biggest TV show on and somebody had said it's a big thing with wings? 
Well, you don't have, have moth wings. Is the thing. <laughs> no. Well, this is this this is my so so my my purely like tech focused interpretation is literally every time and and Keely is obviously very careful to kind of hide this within the fabric of the text. But like every time somebody describes that's Watchmen, Sean, not Batman. This no, this is where it comes from because that's what he's. I'm certain. Wait a minute. I'm certain that I'm right though. No, it's just I've heard this as well. It's just Batman was a show. Mothman was a thing, and some wag in the Point Pleasant. Um, yeah, but that's, but that's what I, literally what I mean, though. Yeah, here we go. Batman and his antique. There we go. Wikipedia. Kill him off. Kill him off. Oh, okay. That's kill him yeah. off. That's different. So that's, a, still that's want... a mashup of Batman and kill him off, though. Okay, this yeah. is interesting. It says here, like, Batman and his antagonist kill him off are varyingly cited influ- as influences for the term off. It would be good if I'd looked this up before but, we yeah, record the episode. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> kill him off isn't a villain in the Batman 66 TV show. Like, he didn't. Forget this. They, they didn't have budget for, did, for a I, flying guy. Where, where did I imagine this Maybe it was from? in John Keel. Is this where it... But, like, all of the descriptions in the book are... <laughs> I didn't I check this before I think my <laughs> reputation. No, due to the popularity of the Batman TV series at the time, the fictional superhero Batman and his rogues gallery were prominently featured in the public eye. While the villain Killer Moth did not appear on the show, the comic book influence of both him and Batman is believed by some to have influenced the coinage of the name Mothman in the local newspapers. So, okay, yeah, so wait, this is... Sources 13 and 14, what's going on that? They're just reading Batman Wikipedia okay. now. Uh, Myths and Mysteries of Illinois Truth. These both look like very self-published books. So what if it fucking actually is the nocturnal butterfly? What if everything I just said is untrue and Mothman is real? That's what, how I'm interpreting this. Every single time that the actual encounters of people in Point Pleasant are described in the book, people say it, take, it, it took off straight up into the air like a plane. Uh, it flew around like... It looked like a large plane. All of the descriptions of eyewitnesses from the book have a, the the witnesses use technological metaphors before they use um, animal ones or spooky ones, and Keel is very careful to thread every description from an eyewitness in Point Pleasant in with another UFO encounter description from somewhere else yes. in the in the UFO during the UFO period, and. That's one of the reasons why the book is so deceptive and, and, and tricksy. And kind and, of unreadable as well. Yeah, yeah, and, right. it's, and it's fucking with you. It's just like you're not, you're, you're doing your best to obfuscate as much as you are to illuminate. That's why Keel is ultimately someone it's hard to like because you can tell, you can feel him tricking you while you're reading the book. Mm. But every single description from an eyewitness in Point Pleasant, they go to saying, they, they des- they're describing a hang glider or a drone or a helicopter before they're describing a big man with wings. Mm, mm. And that and that's the bit that that we, so like as I said before, the film, the kind of the story world of the film is um Richard Gere's trauma and this um you know uh what's the word I'm looking for? The not not a um not a psychopomp but but uh uh, like a banshee, something which prophesies disaster. Yeah. Um, there's a word for that as well, I think. Well, we can just... Like, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Um, it, it is that. But the way the film is directed, and the thing that... The, and the kind of the subtext of the film, all of the things that it shows you, they're technological artefacts. It's not a... It's not a... Things that go bump in the night film. Um, it's a... There's weird shit lurking in the wires film. 
Yes. All about technology and mediation and our ability to kind of process the world through well, the tools that we're given. And, and honestly, I, there's no... There's beyond, like, there's nothing... Like I said in my notes earlier, it made me a nuts and bolts guy, this film. It made me stop believing in the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Because everything can, that you see... Is that the grand unifying theory of the paranormal? The kind of, uh, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so, okay, so, like... Uh, Nuts and bolts theory is that they actually are made of metal. Yeah, that they're technological artifacts created by men from space. I'm not saying that they're created by men from space. I'm saying that they're created by men from the Pentagon, basically. Um, but but Keel's hypothesis is this thing called the super spectrum, which is that which is which is really in UFO law the only story that you ever hear now. Yes, it's by far the dominant narrative. Is the this was Jack, Jack, Jacques Vallée, Jacques Vallée well, yeah. and Alan Hynek, is that like the UFO phenomena taken as a, as a, as a mass thing rather than as an individual thing um, is the same as fairy lore, is the same as encounters, is, is the same as religious experiences yes. in the Jamesian sense that you, that you described earlier. Uh, and, that, and, and then I started to reflect that that's... In my whole adult life, that's what I've believed the UFO phenomenon to be. It's actually, you know, an encounter with the numinous. It's actually, you know, as close as you get to something that's akin to God. It's, it's, it's about that point where reality breaks down. But reading between the lines of the book and the film made me go, hang on a minute. What if that's all bollocks? And what if this is just a hoax or a confection, a concoction? So this is much more like Mirage Men territory, which is a book I've referred to so many times in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, exactly. It, and, it, and, and you, don't need to, you don't need to have a Mothman because you just need to tell people that there's a Mothman there. Some, and something it about, exactly the same function. Actually, I saw, something I saw on Instagram this morning of a similar note, actually, because we obviously, you know, we are, um, the, Calvin, the Calvin photograph was obviously published last year, you know, like the lost UFO photograph. Uh, you know what the, the Calvin, the famous one, the... The bit of the podcast where we just fucking Google, Google it. it. Oh my god, quickly! The uh, yeah, the Calvin photograph. This one. Oh yeah. That okay. One. Oh the, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the one in Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Scott, I think it's it Scott. Oh, it doesn't matter. I think it's Wales. Oh, it doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. It's not the home county, so it might. No, it could be in Wales. Well. Exactly. It's, it's yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. It's but the, the um, shires, let's say. But yeah, the fucking like I think I mean, it was on like the disclosure team Instagram like team. Right. Like take take it with like a fucking like massive like handful of salt. A but, lethal amount of salt. <laughs> <laughs> just just wait a second. Act of incarnacy to poison yourself with salt. The uh, the thing, what they were saying what I was saying today is so the latest thing about it was that um, this was a uh, unmanned aerial vehicle that was used as a kind of experimental form of like a ground target tracking with like lasers mm-hmm. was the latest thing I heard about it so they've been saying about that it's, it's like the thing that I'm fucking like um, what like it, that all Mark Pilkington says in the in the Rajman like that's so striking is basically that um, but most of what the UFO nuts were saying was kind of right like they were like the thing like, like the reported encounters and such were true, but they were just like they were just being fucking done by spooks from U.S. military intelligence, just to muddy the waters around people like seeing um, stealth bomber. 
was the thing. Well, that's yeah. part of it. Like, he goes into further depth of it, but that's like the fundamental yeah, thing. With I, it. Like, I think, but I think UFO can, like, war was actively encouraged by US military intelligence as a disinformation activity. I, yes, I would go a little bit further. I would, I would not disagree with that. I would go a little bit further and say, what about activity that's just like psychotronic warfare being conducted on the American populace? As an experiment, we know yeah. that we know that like this is happening in 1966. This is the height of MK Ultra. Yeah, we know that this is we know that drug testing and, and weird weapons testing uh, on public spaces was absolutely yes. the thing that was being done. Um, and and the Mothman phenomenon, including the point that the fucking bridge collapses at the end of it. I'm afraid if you're using infrasound and and uh, uh, around knackered infrastructure then, yeah, something could break quite easily. Sorry, I hate to say it. And then, and then rapidly stop happening as soon as everyone goes, fuck, we've killed 50 people. There's going to be a bit of an investigation into this. I think we need to pack up and move on. Yeah. Um, the, um, and, and interesting, it was Jacques Chapelet, I, I can't remember where he rises, because I, I think he's entertained like several different theories other than the, the, the their men from space theory about UFOs. One thing, I know he did... Well, he doesn't think they're men from space. He's the arch proponent of the Magonian hypothesis that they're... But no, no, he... he, 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 he's, he, he entertains other theories and no I'm saying like other like he does he's not entertaining that but one of the things he does entertain is that the evidence doesn't point to them being from space. The evidence arguably points to someone wanting you to think they're from space is something he does he has written and stated so like that's what looks like a more rational hypothesis for this. You know that that is that's what's actually happening here. Um, and is there someone a person, or is there someone a, a meta person? Should we say? Well, yeah, we're probably not going to fix it on the two-hour podcast. We are not talking about two thousand and two's Mothman prophecies, which is we are still in theory talking about. <laughs> on that, uh, note, you want to talk uh, about Lovecraft stuff, Luce? Uh, well, on that note, I was going to say like, can we take a quick five minutes to the bathroom? Okay, can I borrow your car? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can, like you can use the car to get in, but I'll just show you how to not get, get out. No, you, no, you, no, I need to show you how to use the lock oh. to get out. Lucy and Sean have gone to the loo there, listener. Uh, have you seen the, um, if you were uh, living in a village, sorry, a town, post-industrial town, that had been the, na- the subject of a horrible disaster where 50 people had died, which had been ascribed to, and kind of, the fault of which had been ascribed to a weird winged entity called Mothman. How would you cope with it? What would you do next? I think that the way that the villagers, villagers, I shouldn't call them that, the townspeople of Point Pleasant have dealt with the fallout of the Mothman via basically a webcam is an excellent example of modern apotropaic magic working. I think that the way that they've actually turned Mothman into a thing that lives in the middle of the village, made of stainless steel, and then stuck a 24-hour webcam on it so that you can see it whenever you want, and encourage people to go up and contain it where it is through the medium of multiple selfies, is actually an excellently wise thing for them to have done. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to the listeners, I am. You, you, you can't just carry on podcasting when Lucy's gone to the toilet. I'm afraid, like, <laughs> there's a ghost in that machine shop. All of this stays in. All of this stays in. I'm so surprised to find us in a situation where you're the one taking the more sceptical approach to this, and I'm the one who says, look, of course the electricity monsters are real. I know, right? I mean, but, it, but it's, it is fun, but it's, all, but it's literally just like... Um, 
You know, you're much more familiar with this film than I am. All of the, um, the motifs, right? The kind of, the mise-en-scene, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the atmosphere of the film. It's not like, it's not haunted houses or cobwebs or things that go bump in the night. It's telephones. It's wires. It's a TNT factory. None of these things are uh, gothic in like the old world sense. It's incredibly about media. Mm. About electric, like you said. It's, it's a true like film post-millennium film, you know, like it's a film as, as much a product of 2002 as, as uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was of 1979, you know, like it is very, it is so much itself and, um, Nicole just came on the podcast and all this, he's like, yeah, because like, like they, on a formal element as well, you know, because like um, the director, you know, cut his teeth doing music videos and the film is often cut like, especially the bits where Mothman turns up, it's cut like a music video from the, from mm. like a new metal video from the 2000s, right? Well, that, I mean, um, that's, because it looks like they're kind of it looks like the budget is under pressure towards the end of the film and they've got to keep a load back to spend on the bridge collapse which is which is an excellent sequence like it's like it's really yeah it's really kind of chunkily done and it feels just right mm. um but the first act and a half of the film have that kind of moth cam view there's a lot of moth cam yeah. where there's things swooping in and swooping out abruptly from the frame as as if you know, the, the, as if Mothman lives in the camera somewhere, which obviously is, is kind of my point that, mm. that he does. Um, like I said, they kind of give up on Who using that kind of right technique. Hello. Hello. Hiya. All right. Yeah. Bob decided to carry on without us. <laughs> okay. What? Just talking in. I did. No, I didn't. I did not. Okay, it's your card. There's a ghost in that machine, as I keep saying. Oh, Lord. Uh, huh. All right. So, yeah. The. Like, should we, like, start. Oh, should we start wrapping this up? Now? Okay, it's, it's, it's three where is Mothman now? <laughs> Barry Mothman or the Hampshire Mothmans, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> do you want to talk a little about... I mean, wait, there was a point you had hanging about psychopaths. Like, what was the deal with that? No, it wasn't. That was, okay. the, that was the bit about um, Batman is killing moth from... Okay, well, that's not what I was, <laughs> was going to say, which was, which was not that thing at all. That thing is that, like... Yeah, so, uh, if we're just, like... So Lovecraft predicted all of this. <laughs> he failed to account for nothing. But like, yeah, the Whippoorwills in Dunwich Horror, that's the whole like psychopomp angle. They bring it up explicitly, but then like you get the kind of choruses of Whippoorwills happening when there's the big kind of like encounter with the, the creature. And was I just thinking like, uh, if we want to like get a kind of like closest Mothman analogue, maybe it's the kind of just fully black figure that emerges alongside the witch in, in um, Dreams of the Witch House. What's her name? It's like, uh, oh, it's like, it's like, like she's got like Granny Brown or something like that, isn't oh, it? Oh no, Brown Jenkins is the. Oh, that's 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 yeah, like, no, it's Waitley, isn't it? Wait, no, that's the video Waitley. That's Dunwich Hard. No, the other the other witch. Let's just fucking Google it. Yeah, yeah, because she's got a good name, right? but um, but she's like described as being like alongside a. Well, actually, no. The reason I brought this up was like going way back into um. The earlier part, like the pre-synopsis bit, Kazaya Mark. Kazaya Mason. Mason. Oh, brilliant! Name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But basically, I don't know. Like, um, this is just so. I don't know if the listeners guess, but I didn't do any research. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a bad time mentally. 
Uh, so, but like, I've but I've read some Lovecraft in my time, and um, and spent a good deal of time on the uh, it happened to me forums on the Forty Times website, which I believe is still going. I think I've archived all like the classics though. But um, yeah, basically, um, so yeah, like, because I basically was described as like having. I think it's like not a familiar, but like kind of, but kind of her boss. I wanted to say in this kind of like anthropomorphized scheme of things, who's just like, like described as kind of like. Well, they talk about like the, the black goat in the woods, and there's all like some some very Lovecraftian connotations uh, to <laughs> that. But also, it's like I figure it's being described as like completely vanta black, like just like a shadow made substance yeah. or something. And but that, is that is Nilapotep in like love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, and that, and that, Nilapotep takes a lot of forms. He's something of a trickster, no? The yeah, G- John Keel of the... Yeah, but, ge- gen- but generally, like, Nilapotep is the Mothman, right? Like, because, like, the whole thing, like, sort of, like what do you yeah. look like? Well, that depends on who's looking. Like, the whole thing about Nilapotep is that, like, yeah, he's, you know, the one with a thousand waxen masks. Yeah. So he's anything he needs to he be. He should put on the robe and the mask that hides. Yeah, the robe and the yeah, um, so that's, that's actually specifically from Whisper of Darkness, um, where the My Girl were also described as having kind of electronic-y sounding voices, like voices generated and, from another... And okay. the My Girl are also in Lovecraft Canon, they are the Yeti, and yeah. they are the Yeti, and they're kind of like Ergo Bigfoot, maybe? Mm. Like, uh... Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know, like, that was the thing about, like, Lovecraft predicting these things, but, like, he didn't... There's some, I mean, like, if we're going into, like, high strangeness, 14 territory, um, uh, we all have our various takes on this, but, you know, like, way back in the day when we talked, when we did the Nosferatu episode, we brought up, like, the Dark Lord, uh, the, um, the, the Peter Lavender yeah, book about, about, about Kenneth, Kenneth Brand, Brand, and, Alistair yeah. Crowley, and H.P. Lovecraft, and there was that thing about, like, the supposed, well, like, basically kind of a lot of disconnected things coming together in what seemed, to, appeared to be, for all intents and purposes, a meeting of minds on a kind of astral plane between H.P. Lovecraft and Alistair Crowley, uh, where Alistair Crowley, during, I think it was one of the things where he was, like, writing down something that was being dictated to it him was, in no, it Egypt. Was, it, it, was when he, it was one of the um, visionary experiences in um, The Vision and the Voice when he's going through the Enochian... Uh, towers, yeah, I think it is. and there's like an entity. He's not sure what it is. Like it's something like uh, uh, it has the name Tulu. Clu- yeah, like it's like Tulu or Clulu or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and, and yeah, and it's basically like, and this was sort of the conditions under which this name is learnt kind of resemble those Lovecraft described happening in the minds of sensitive dreamers around the world. Hmm. Um, that, and it's the same date. The date that Love Rat Crowley um, went through that that Enochian Easter, it was called. That is the date that Lovecraft set um, the psychic apocalypse that happens at the beginning of Call of Cthulhu, yeah. which is meant to be, which is like in the story, which is kind of spooky. Which is where, because that's the date yeah. when Relay rises, and every like sensitive in the world like has horrific nightmares because they've all heard it and that's what that's the date that the actual events of like the steamship uh, encountering relay happens on in the story that's yeah. the date that and that crowley the word kuru or tululu whatever it is yeah. is vibrated through the ether and that's the thing about like within a couple of months of people actually setting foot on antarctica for the first time as well probably yeah I think it is. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, so basically like... 1904 was it? Or was it later? I don't know. 
Uh, well, this is the twenties. Yeah, this is the nineteen twenties. Okay. Um, but yeah, basically, like I don't. From what I understand, um, Lovecraft wasn't necessarily plugged into a lot. You know, this shit was around, but Lovecraft wasn't necessarily plugged into it. As in, like he was tangentially aware of stuff. He knew about Alistair Crowley, but just. See, like, he knew what theosophy him. was. Like, he, yeah. talk, he writes about, like, theosophists in Call of Cthulhu. So, like, and, like, he knew what the... Like, yeah. who, like, he didn't believe in any of it, but he, you know, he knew what the you know, occultism was. He probably had heard the name Alistair Crowley and so on. But, like, he had no, like, certainly had no sympathy with anything like that. Because that's the whole, like, Lavender's thesis almost is that, you know, the 93 current, whatever it is, you know, sort of the, the magical current that Alistair Crowley puts into the world or receives uh, and comes into the world through him, you know... For Crowley, that is just like explosion of liberty, like a pure, like libidinal freedom that comes from that. And Lovecraft, he's just he he he's the sensitive as well in some sense, and he receives the same experience, like in you know etheric information, as it were. But Lovecraft, because of like his neuroses and his bigotries, for him, like everyone having just like a gay old time, as it were, <laughs> it's just like the fall of civilization. It, yeah. It's just the worst possible fucking thing you could imagine. I like um, Holocaust of Ecstasy, is it? Yes, yes, yeah. it's that of, of, like of new cruelty. ways to, to revel and destroy. And yeah. yeah, and they would teach us new ways to this. Yeah, it does, yeah, it's. It's very, very much encapsulated in the uh, Indrid Cold in the in the that line about like depends on who's looking. It's like, <laughs> do you want to fuck the entity? <laughs> and, and whether you're Lovecraft or Crowley is whether you give an emphatic no or an emphatic, <laughs> incredibly emphatic yes. <laughs> Indrid Cold just lovingly telling you to keep taking deep breaths as he as the wrist slips in. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, my goodness. <laughs> I'm in the church this morning. Um, uh, All right. Um, but yeah, I think, well, there was, there was that one little bit. I was just like a little crumb of Fortiana that I wanted to kind of drop into this, uh, which was the fact that, like, my favorite of the It Happened to Me stories published on uh, the 14 Times website was um, that whole mega thread about the black stick men, which, you know, predated Slenderman by about 10 years. Mm. Um, and this was this thing about. This is just like another very, what I, you know, has always been for me the canon cool example of high strangeness in that like, they're not described as being kind of, you know, gothic or spooky things. They're like, they're basically described as like, if you, if you imagine like a stick figure just drawn onto a photograph of reality, but it's lolloping around South London in one of these accounts or it's witnessed wow. like, you know, on a farm. Um, and it often happens at twilight and has kind of like has accompanying phenomena like one person describes having something like what feels like bees in their hair and like or like a gob of some sort of black substance falls out of their hair at one point Ooh. and there's like a big shadow passes across a wall um and like these these things aren't specifically connected to the thing but seem to have some sort of affinity with the appearance of these stick men uh, but yeah, I don't know, I just thought that was kind of cool, and also it's a bit like how Neil Apatab is described in one of the stories, or what an entity that is very likely Neil Apatab. Nice. So, uh, the Mothman is Neil Apatab, uh, works for the Pentagon. Mothman's just a hang glider, <laughs> with a couple of red torches on it. Well, That's the other thing, like, um, well, in the book, yeah. in the book, uh, Keel has to describe what a hang glider is, <laughs> because, people have, because people haven't seen them yet, because it's a new thing. So it's a bit like, there was a thing flying around in the sky with two headlights on it, and it's like, oh, it could have been a hang glider. Hang glider. 
A hanged glider. A hanged glider, a winged beast of the skies. But yeah. they, I don't know, like, I feel like a kind of useful note to wrap up on would be kind of like, where is Mothman now? Um, in the... He's living his best moth life. Uh, yeah. He's in, in, uh, he's enshrined in a statue, but also it's just kind of like, well, we talked briefly about like, you know, nuts and bolts versus ground theory of unifying theory of the paranormal. It's kind of like, unifying theory of the paranormal happens, does seem to be happening a moment outside the traditional channels of UFO lore. Um, I'm thinking specifically about, um, Undefinable with Demi Lovato, where she's kind of made of... You know Demi Lovato? Yeah, Demi Lovato's a, a, a UFO person now. Yeah. They're non-binary, but They're she is okay. Like, I um, don't know who they are. What have they been in? Um, they're they're, they're act, a singer they're from they're the singer. 2010s. Yeah, an influencer. Don't expect me to know a popular singer. <laughs> You're the kind of shit I listen My to. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so, I would disagree. Oh. I, I would say that I would say that um, that nuts and bolts is having a resurgence because the because the USAF has just gone ape shit shooting down anything that it can well, find it on radar. Well, it depends whether you're on TikTok or Twitter, I guess, or Reddit. <laughs> the Vato started training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in 2016. He promoted to Purple Belt. But they've got a show, they've got a show where they talk to, um, actually they seem to be, I think the show is about them talking to... They seem to be to, being exploited by... Yeah, 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 clearly. Yeah. Um, but, but it's like, um, you know, channelers. Rather than contactees, right? It's like subtle yeah. difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like this it's like Zuma's version of uh I believe in the <laughs> Danny Dyer's I want to believe. I Danny Dyer and I believe in UFOs. Yeah. It's the best the best <laughs> thing you've ever seen. Yeah. It could have been one it could have a wonderful sequence where he goes to visit um Patrick Moore. Like, and that presumably, like, they could only do this if sort of, like, Patrick Moore did not have to either leave his house or turn off his television. Because he's just talking to Danny Dyer while sat in his picture of his tiny little old telly watching the cricket and drinking a tank with a tank of nut brown ale. Just sort of, like, just kind of wide. It's like a tank of And he just sort of, like, at one point, just sort of, like, says this. Sort of, well, yes, you know, if we ever were to meet aliens, that would be a lot, wouldn't it? But, yeah, just just carry that every bit. <laughs> The, yeah. um, and, oh. That's actually that that show contains a kind of real tension between the nuts and bolts and mixed methods approach because like he basically spends like a good deal of time walking around like going around Britain with a bunch of you know people investigating crop circles and like just looking at shit on CCTV and like this wonderful scene where he goes he just follows this guy who like he's like. Yeah, so we're gonna go to the farm and ask a farmer some questions. We're not gonna like, we're gonna be clever about it though. We're not gonna come straight out and say, have your cattle been mutilated by aliens? Because that'll turn them off and they won't give us any more information. So they go and like, have you noticed that your cattle are missing heads and limbs under mysterious circumstances? <laughs> and has this perhaps coincided with any bright lights that you remember? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, no, and it just like pulls out just a bunch of extremely graphic cattle mutilation photos and just like flips through them to this. I mean, he's like, he's a farmer. He's seen, he, per he has personally mutilated bodies of cattle in like, <laughs> probably more humane ways, but like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And probably didn't find but yeah, any choice then, of then, like, he doesn't really. Issue. Yeah, so the documentary kind of just trails off because not much really happens. <laughs> <laughs> so then he just flies out to California. 
and meets a bunch of guys just yeah. on a on a very different kind of a bunch of different kind of trip yeah a bunch of hi- a bunch of hippies and they go and out one night and just point at literally every object in the sky <laughs> and be like yep there it is there's one there's one yeah, yeah there we go cool um so yeah so, so what's, what's the official weird signal position on this so whether Mothman was real or not whether Mothman was real or not kind of prior to Keel's book or prior to the movie since then and since the collapse of any industrial base worth getting a job for, Point Pleasant have kind of made Mothman a real thing and kept him within a relatively safe boundary, as you would if you kind of held him responsible for the death of 50, 50 of your townspeople. So he's they didn't a, die for nothing, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, it's like you kind of, um, you'd contain him, right? So you'd, you'd, and you'd appease him. Uh-huh. So, you'd, so you'd, you'd do what they do. You have an annual festival where everybody uh, kind of like dresses up and puts him in a safe box while also honouring his name. You have a statue that people can go and genuflect before regularly. You'd make sure that that statue was kept an eye on at all times. You'd go through a series of quite practical steps to welcome but um, make safe the presence of this thing in your town, which I think they've done. Yeah, and fair play to them for it. That's just that's just sensible folk magic. That's just a good. That's just good management of bad forces. Yeah. So there we go. Um, when are we going to get Danny Dyer? I believe in Mothman. Is that's 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 the that's, that's, the, that's the question. His career has actually improved since that documentary. Which has, well, he's yeah. left EastEnders, isn't he? Yeah. Has he has left EastEnders? Yeah, he died at Christmas. Yeah. Oh. Oh yeah, and no, I saw they drove into the sea, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And he died trying to rescue Linda, who then kind of popped up behind and was like, "But I don't need rescuing." Is this, like, be, oh. is this going to be weird signal art? Just EastEnders creeps into every episode. That was co- with Lee doing it. was Coronation Street. Fucking hell. Uh. Because Coronation Street nearly turned to be gay because of the gay kiss, but my mum put her hand over my eyes. Yeah. So oh, lucky. I know. That was... That was uh, it, it worked. Effort well spent on that. Ah, do you know what I mean? Is that, is that us done? Have we... Have we I think... I think it feels like kind of like... I Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's it. I guess that's us. Oh, uh, we didn't talk about Hellier, but like maybe we don't need to talk Let's, about Hellier. Just, you know, just go, just, just, yeah, like. Well, like Hellier's like. Is Hellier is Hellier Messiah Hel- as well? Okay, Hellier is fun yeah, if you yeah. can, if you just sort of like edit out mentally every part where they say the word synchronicity because it's really boring to watch people react to shit they expect to happen being fulfilled in incredibly tenuous ways yeah. and then making that their whole day. And can I have, actually, and, and I've got my... In a TV show that's been scripted. Can I have my, uh, my sus Hellier moment, actually? Just for listeners, if you don't know what Hellier is, it's a, like, self-produced little uh, sort of, like, paranormal investigation show that just, like, it goes, it goes in lots of directions about goblins and Mothman, but the spy and... This is something maybe we can do like a little bonus thing at some point. We talk about this, but like my sus hellier point I want to make is just like this is actual real sort of like super tenuous synchronicity crap. Is one of them at one point wears a shirt for the Best Friends Animal Society, which is a animal charity, which is the last living legal continuity of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. There you go. Yeah, you, you, you could call that tenuous. I call that... Or just blatant. Real. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So, um, well then. Uh, we've come a long way. We've come a long way this afternoon, I think. But so have we? <laughs> <laughs> 
so I think really all all that's left to say is that uh, Lucy, actually, would you like to uh, you and Bob like to lead us out on this with the well sign off? Till next time, dear sweet listener, keep it weird and keep it signal. It's meant to be stay signal, but we all allow. Oh, it. stay signal. Yeah. Oh, well, also, Bob oh. came up with. Bob yeah, I thought I invented. You it. fucking came up with it, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, and he fucked up. Unless we've been doing it wrong all this time. Anyway, good night. Bye.